regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where we have a long-term and in-depth conversation with our practitioners unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Bob Van White, the CEO and co-founder of Semi Technologies, the business created around the open source vector search engine Wiviet. He is a frequent speaker on open source, digital technology, software business, and business philosophy. In addition to a TEDx talk, he has spoken worldwide at hundreds of events on open source, business strategy, and startup. So Bob, with that introduction out of the way, I would love to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. So I want to start our chat by discussing a bit about your early interest in programming. So while doing a bit of research on your profile, I found out that you started working as a freelance software engineer at the age of 15 on a variety of projects, mostly on e-commerce website for small business in the Netherlands. So could you mind going over this formative period of your upbringing? Yeah, sure. I think, so for me, it started actually a little bit earlier and I think it's almost a cliche story, but I'm born in 85. So that's important to know because that is like when I was growing up, we had this combination of in the home, we had a personal computer and early on we got the internet. And when I was very young, I remember that my dad brought home, I think it's an, it was an IBM, but I'm not hundred percent sure. And I must have been very young because I wasn't in high school yet. And I remember that the machine had QBasic on it. And in the library, so I'm, I grew up in Holland, but there was like this Dutch guy who wrote programming books for children. And I got like this QBasic book. And there were like these two lines of code that you could write. And in this case, the book was in Dutch, but what I had to type was in English was like, I don't know the exact. QBasic language anymore, but it's like, what's your name? And then the variable for name and then hi, and then the variable name. And I remember that I did that for the first time and that was very magical and that you could work with a machine like that. So it's since then I've been interested in uh, making stuff with, with computers or making stuff in general. I, we probably going to drill in that later. But I like to make things. And uh, when I was growing up, I was a little bit older. So what you were just referring to when I was like, what, 15, there was this whole, there was around the year 2000. So there was like this whole boom happening of people moving online. And a lot of people needed websites and e-commerce websites. Bear in mind, we don't talk about the sophistication that e-commerce websites have today, but you don't know the early uh, versions of those, but just where people having an outlet where they could say, hey, you can buy my stuff online. And this was really like friends of the family and people around that had businesses and needed that. And my first serious gig there was, if you could call that serious compared to what I do now, but let's 
that I'm just going to go there. So was that the, that I had a little, a, a small job after school, was 15 years old. And I had to unpack like toothbrushes and those kind of things that they were selling at gas stations. And then the guy said, okay, I need something to do that online. And I said, I can build you a website to do that. And then every time after school, when I came to work, my friends had to go into the right. They had to go in the warehouse to unpack the toothbrush. And I had to go to the left to the computer and his website. As I always like to see. I never want to be reminded of that website again. I think it would be horrible if I see it now, let alone security issues and what have you. But that was the first time that I had to go to, to the Chamber of Commerce, register myself and work on the web. So I've been working on software for a very long time already. Yeah, I see. And as a freelance engineer, you just push websites for different people so that you got practice like how to almost studying your own side hustle, side business, even if you actually start your real business. Yes. And there's something interesting to say about it, because if we talk about, if you use the word business, then that somehow assumes that I had any type of business savviness at that age. I absolutely did not have that. So I was just doing that to make some money and I enjoyed doing it. That was like, really, those were the two reasons. Mm -hmm. And. I was a little bit older. I'm still in my teens. So now I'm 17 years old or something. I'm starting to study and I got another side gig. And this was at a company that was like a huge warehouse that a lot of food that was being transported to Holland and Germany, et cetera, that was coming from that, from that warehouse. And back then all the drivers, they still had to write down like the hours and how long they drove and those kind of things. And they bought a machine to automate that. So these, these folks got passes that these, basically the men and women working in the warehouse or driving the trucks, they had to use the machine. But back then that machine came without software and I wrote that software and I enjoyed doing that very much. And I learned a lot from that, but I didn't understand yet the value that I was creating for this company. There was like a dozen people reading these forms every week. And now there was like, the, I just send them the 17 year old kid, just send them an Excel file saying, okay, you don't do, have to do that anymore really making software came from the fact that I just enjoyed to make stuff. It was only later that I was like, oh, wait a second. The business side of this is actually very interesting as well. But then it was just for fun. Yeah. Thanks for telling the stories and terrifying your passion for writing software for the sake of funness. You're talking about your study and Based on my research, your formal education is in music. You study jazz at the Art Easy University of Arts in the Netherlands, and then later music theory and composition at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And I believe that after completing your studies, you actually create notable works, include uh, an album called The Core, and you also collaborate with so many other jazz artists. Um, can you go over your career as a musician? Yeah, so I, I didn't really have a career there. So what I, what I did is the, so back when I was 17, I had to make a decision. So, okay, so what do I want to do? So what am I going to study? And again, software for me back then, nowadays, I believe that's different, but back then software was very, was very much related to computer science and those kind of things. But I like to make stuff more. I'm not good at everything. I'm actually not good at a lot, but there are just a few things that I could do. So I could write software and I could make music. And 
apparently I had some talents for it because I got some grants to, to study. And I was very interested first in jazz and later in composition. I think what might be interesting from the compositional part to relate it to what we're talking about today is that I started to incorporate a lot of software in that as well. So I was just writing stuff in certain languages to, to make stuff and that we played with a band and that we did bigger things in software. Even later, I made music, musical compositions that only included software. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing that I've learned from that is what it means to make something, right? To, to finish something. And because that's an industry, again, back then I was still not thinking about things from a business perspective, but mm -hmm. from an industry perspective, it, that's, it's very hard to work in that industry. And I still have friends in there. It's just, it's hard, right? So it's hard to do that. And I've learned what it means to really make something start to finish, which I'm something that I'm very grateful of because I'm using that today in how I look at building products and those kind of things. So basically by then when I was done, I was like, what is it? 23 or something and 24. And then I started my master degree. So I, I studied for some time in Boston at Berkeley, but in the meantime, I was still writing software to make some money. But now this was starting to take off. So now I had to make a decision and I did notice like, I really need to make a decision what I'm going to do, what direction I'm going to take in my life. And then I decided to go, okay, I'm going to go full in, in software. That's what I love the most. But I, I've learned so much on studying music. Also my time in Boston at Berkeley was very formative and it was just such an exciting time. It was also the time where technology or software started to make its appearance. So it started, there was so much happening. If I now look back and to the time when I could back in time, I was like, oh, there's so much amazing stuff happening, do more. But yeah, that was all happening then. And that was like around the 10s, I think, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit later. But that back then that I came to the point, I like to make stuff. I like to make things uh, for mm -hmm. other people to enjoy or to use or those kind of things. Yeah. I think that made a pretty good transition to my, my next question. You mentioned a little bit about like how you made a decision to go in, into more the software direction and the, the biggest takeaway you have from that studying music is you even use software to create music, right? In 2010, you start your first company. This one is called Kubrick Ecology. And it's an agency that uses emerging technologies to design, develop innovative solutions for everyday problems. And while doing a bit of research on some of your work, I come across this artwork called Control Human Data Sound, which is yeah. a music composition based completely on variables from a brain sensing headband. Would you mind explaining the idea behind that project? Yeah. First of all, you've done your research very well because every, everything you're saying that is correct. That is true. So at some point, there was like a lot of these wearables were like introduced, the rings and of course the Fitbits, but there was also a lot of these EEG scans were entering the market and they all came with SDKs. So can I do something with such an SDK? And there was a conference in the Netherlands called the Dutch Design Week, and they were very interested in stuff that was happening with technology. So I made something that I presented there and that was um, the idea was very simple. I hired a dancer, like a modern head dancer, 
he was wearing that that headband and I was just registering all the information from the EEG scan and I had 16 synthesizers that were basically playing over these what was coming from the EEG scan. And of course, I had some software written around that, which I called the composition. So the composition was not in musical notation anymore, but it was just uh, purely in software. I believe back then I used, I think I used JavaScript to that, but I, I'm not sure anymore. And, and then basically I, I asked the guy to just to dance based of what, whatever he was hearing and the composition was driven through the software. So there was a context and every time that we did the composition over and over, you could hear the similar structures, but it was every time different because it got that information. The goal of this was just to play around with variables that I was getting from different sources than, uh, in this case, from a dancer. So that was like something that I made and it was successful. We made a film out of that and it was shown at some places and some festivals around the world. So that was very cool. But that was indeed in the, when I had my consultancy firm. The firm was actually was named after Stanley Kubrick because I'm a big movie fan, Stanley Kubrick fan. And what I really liked was that Stanley Kubrick had a, as a type of rigor in how he was working and that his type of working or his methodology was called like, people refer to that as like Kubrickology. So I thought, hey, that's a cool name for a company. And that's how I, yeah, that's how I started my really seriously my journey as a consultant. And that started just as a software engineer, but later that grew into more also consultancy work. So, okay. I was starting to work for enterprises and they had questions around architecture, platforms, platforms became like the word, the buzzword back then. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of work in that as well. Yeah. Thanks for having the, the details of the project as well as the evolution of your, your work uh, with Kubrickology. And I'm sure to include the video of uh, that composition in the show notes as well. Cool. Um, I got a chance to, to watch it and it's, it's very interesting because you explain how, how it works. Like related to your work. With the design consultancy, you also written a couple of articles about technology as aesthetic discipline, the overlap between IOTs and the semantic web, as well as the anything as a service ideology. So reflecting on the aspect of your work as a creative technologist, what are some of the threats that you have kept pulling? Yeah. Okay. So this is a very interesting question, right? You asked me about the trends that I saw, right? What were some ideas that you keep come back to initiatives? Yes, something. So let me answer the question like this. That's not an exact answer to your question because I wasn't really into like trend seeking or those kind of things. The point that I was trying to make, and this is still a hobby horse that I have. So it's like something that I still find very important to say is that technology and especially software is amazing to be creative in, to make stuff. And especially back then, people didn't see it like that. It was like, I know I, I sound very old. I'm not that old, but that it was more like technology was more like a, the software that people were writing was like, if you want to support like the banking system or something, then work in technology and then you can do something there. But all these startups started to appear and all these other things that people were making, sometimes even more on the creative spectrum. And what I was trying to do was trying to highlight the creativity of what we can do with technology and maybe we get to this later, about a, a year ago or something, I also even gave a TED talk about that topic where I go even one, one step further on that, that I was like, the technology allows us to be creative and 
make new things. So I was trying to celebrate the fact that we could do that, which I'm still doing today and which I'm still trying to support. So for example, last in March, I was at South by Southwest in Austin, and then I like to watch all the creative coders so that they write music and those kind of things while writing code on the screen. That's mm-hmm. an amazing scene. But that is just, that is even on the far end of the spectrum, even being creative in like how we build business models, how we build solutions, the things we can do with machine learning. And this should not be confused. So sometimes people confuse this with things that they think of as being artistic. So for example, now with stable diffusion, they look like an image, they see an image and go, oh, so that is the, the creative part. And that's not what I mean at all. Just human creativity to build things that can be on one at the far end of the creative spectrum that can be artistic, but they can also be businesses, new startup, new ideas, uh, those kind of things. So people that take the risk and make the leap of turning a, a creative idea into something practical. And I th- really think today is just the time of software. That's just, that's the time we live in. Yeah. There is one, another part that you could also emphasize on later on this period is the merging between the physical world and, and, and digital world. Uh, can you yeah. elaborate more on, on that notion and what sort of thinking behind that? Yeah. So the idea behind that, so I, I indeed, I spoke about that and I wrote about that was that at some point I started to notice that what we do, so the information we process and the information we store is we take something from the physical world. So indeed the world of atoms and um, we translate that into bits and bytes and then we do something with it and then something else comes out that we use again in the physical world. So I could go to a restaurant and I can eat sushi. That is physical stuff that goes into machine because I pay for it and now it became a transaction and a transaction lives in the digital world and we can do stuff with that. And maybe from a financial perspective, maybe the restaurant owner takes the, the cash out and makes it physical again to buy new fish or, and this goes very far. And this is not to be confused per se with the whole concept that's currently happening with the metaverse, because then we stay in the digital um, realm. But another example that I often give is, is for example, something like a, a dating app, right? Where in the past you were meeting people 100% in the physical world and you were dating that now you go in the digital realm, I don't know, Tinder or something like that or whatever dating apps you have. And then you're there, you do your thing there, you meet people there. And then all of a sudden you go out of that in the physical again and you meet maybe somebody in person. And the argument that I was making in that post and in the talks that about the topic was that we start to move more and more things to the digital world and we can do more in the digital world that we can do in the physical world. And I think that's a good, that's an exciting thing. I don't know if it's a good thing, but I think it's an exciting thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing the example use cases. And I want to circling back into one of your earlier point about that TEDx talk that you gave at the University of Amsterdam last year. And I believe you introduced three high-level ideas about why software works well based on its ability to adapt to our language. Can you share some of the ideas with the listeners? Yeah, sure. So I got this invitation to give a TEDx talk and, and I was free. They, of course, they had a more overarching subject, but within that I was 
free to choose any topic that I wanted to talk about. And because this is something of my interest areas, right? I was able to just go to the deepest level. I was like, can I just try to package in these 12 minutes, I believe, or 50 minutes, whatever. But in that talk, the ideas that I have around this. And one of my hobbies, I would say, or things that I love to, that I'm interested in is language. And not per se language as in, from a literary perspective, but more how we learn language and how we use language to communicate and those kind of things. The deep philosophical stuff, I guess. It's something that I'm interested in. And one thing that I noticed that if we make software, that if we use programming languages to write, we use language, right? So there's something that we describe in language and language changes. We know that language changes. And there's this famous saying, because the beautiful thing about language is that you have infinite possibilities with finite means. And that's the idea. I think that's from Noam Chomsky, but I'm not hundred percent certain anymore. And I was thinking, so if we use language to write software and the language that we write it in is finite, but it is possible to have infinite means with that finite set of characters and sounds that we have, then that must mean that we also have infinite possibilities in the software that we're writing. So as society changes, as language changes, that in the end ends up in the software that we're writing. So the case that I'm making at the end of the TEDx talk is if you can think about it and if you can formulate it, you can make software about it. So things we cannot do in the physical world, even if we can talk about it, is something we can manifest. And that was the case that I was making in that TEDx talk. That is like, whatever you can think about, whatever you can come up with, as you can express it in language, you can make it in software. Can you provide some examples of those just so we can imagine how that yeah. manifests itself in the digital realm? Yeah, sure. So I can marry two things uh, together. So what we just discussed about like the difference between the digital and the physical world and what we can express in language. I came home last Saturday from a trip to New York mm -hmm. and I was extremely tired. So what I did was I went to bed early and I put on one of the extended versions of Lord of the Rings because that just, just with a cup of tea, I was just watching that. And back in the books of Tolkien, he writes about dragons and those kind of things. And when he wrote those books, we just had to use our imagination to read it, but he could express it, but we could only read about it. Now I was watching the Peter Jackson movie and I can actually see something that looks like a a pretty damn real dragon to me when it's flying on the screen. I don't see any reason why that comes in the future will come closer and closer to what we really perceive as reality, right? the stuff that's happening with Neuralink and those kind of things. Now there's still this distance and I need to look at the screen, but I perceive it as the, the realm that it's in, I perceive it as something real. And I don't see why in the future that would not even come closer for us to really perceive it as being real. By the way, I think that's the people working on the metaverse is the promise that they also believe in. That is what I mean with it. So it was, we're able to express what that means in language. People believe it. And then let's not go into what that actually means, but people believe it. And then we use digital te technologies. So in the case of the movie, CGI, software to express that in and show it. 
I'm pretty sure that if we look at the software that's written for Lord of the Rings and, and the dragon flies, that we see something like uh, a, a function that is called uh, a wing flap or something. I don't know. But we use that language to describe what we want to see. Mm-hmm. And that's slowly being turned into reality. That's not going overnight. It takes decades. But step by step, we see that's happening. So that is what I mean when I talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing the concrete examples and the books. Mostly I'm definitely excited as well about Metaverse, this AR, VR concept and how we can move even to more sort of high dimensional world when we can express these concepts in, in very vivid physical manifestation. And yeah, it's pretty cool because there's somewhat a connecting thread between what we just talked about and this notion, factor search engine. Right. Because if we think about embeddedness, that's what it is. I want to talk about the main focus of our conversation today, which is your work with Weaviet. So in March 2016, you started this open source practice search engine called Weaviet. And by the end of 2018, you start building a team around Weaviet to get the software to a production level and create a business model around the open source project. Could you mind sharing the history of Weaviet from its origin to the time your startup semi was co- incorporated? So WeFit itself went to three important stages. So the first stage that it went through was that I was at a conference in, so back then I was working as a, so as a consultant and I was part of something called, uh, it's called a GDE program, which stands for Google Developer Expert Program. And one of the cool things was that you could meet the people working on the products, you get get early access to the products, those kind of things. And back then, Google Cloud or cloud services in general, but also Google Cloud was very new. And in the and simultaneous to that, Google was announcing that I remember there was this talk giving by uh, Sander Pichai where he said, we're going from mobile first to AI first. And I was like, oh, that sounds fancy. So I'm curious what that is. And uh, the third thing that was happening was that I was introduced to word embeddings, which was back then Word2Vac and Lost or Fast. Like this is all pre-transformers, right? And the first thing that I tried to do with Weaviate was that I tried to marry the concepts and the idea of the semantic web. So where they say things instead of strings, I tried to marry that to the stuff that was happening with machine learning. So I was saying, can I take a data object and can I represent it uh, with an embedding back then that was coming from Word2Vec? So we took text from the embedding, calculated a centroid based on the word embedding, and then stored that in some kind of a graph-like format. And for today's standards, that was not very, not very sophisticated. I was experimenting with that. I was trying it out. It was just something that I was playing around with. Then there was a second big step within Weaviate because back then I was still working as freelance and I could use Weaviate for something which was related to IoT because a big problem that we saw within the Internet of Things was that a lot of companies with APIs, they would output descriptions of what an API endpoint meant. And even if they meant semantically the same thing, then different vendors would use different terms to output it. So then we start. we tried to attach Reviate to existing databases. And then I met my co-founder, uh, Jen, 
And we figured out, wait a second, we Transformers were also released back then. And then we thought, wait a second, we think two things. One, we think that the vector search engines, and we probably want to talk in a bit what they actually do and what they solve, is going to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that we thought that existing databases or existing search engines might not be the ideal types of databases to work with in with embeddings. And then we decided to really double down on this. And then the company was started. The company is called Semi Technologies. Semi is an abbreviation. Stands for Semantic Machine Insights. Back mm-hmm. then, we only focused on NLP. Now, it, the whole, the wide spectrum. And the solution was still called Weaviate. So Weaviate, as you know it today, the first version was, I believe, released in 20, January 20, or no, yeah, something like that, or somewhere in 2020. I don't know the exact date again, but that was really, that was, okay, this is a database. And everything, all these learnings from these years before came together, and that was like the database that it became and that it is still today. And we're just improving it, making it better, and helping people to understand what they can do with these types of technologies in their software stack. So there's a couple of things I want to follow up on your answers. The first one is finding your co-founders, right? How did you choose your co-founder to actually convince them to join your journey of creating business out there? Yes. So at some point, this is a good question, and it's actually not so easy to answer that question. It's actually, you, you should ask them, so why did you join, right? I can tell you with, for if people are listening who are founders, you paint a picture of what it might be able to do and painting a picture by showing, not telling works very well. So you might remember that in the beginning of this conversation, I used the word that it's like, it was like magical to see the machine do something. I remember that the first time that we did semantic queries on an ANN index was like magical. Whoa, you type in something, a semantic query, and we are able to retrieve the documents in a way that we want. And showing that to people and dreaming about what the potential would be of bringing that to the market, that was for the early co-founders, so the, the early people joining the, the early co-founders, that was, the, that was how I did that. But that was not something that I did intentionally. It was not like, okay, now I'm going to talk to somebody to persuade them to join. No, that was just, I really believe in this. So I was just saying, look at how cool this is. And do you want to join? And and that's how I did it. So there was no strategy behind it. It was just a very pragmatic thing driven by very being very enthusiastic about the space and loving this specific space that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing and how you eventually found your co-founders. Another thing I want to talk about, given your answer is like, how do you decided to build a business around the open source project, right? And matter of fact, you recently wrote this article on Forbes titled, Why the Business Model of Open Source Software Works. So can you unpack some of the high level ideas on your thinking around this, this concept? Yeah. And to answer that question, I need to go a little bit back in history. So now when I was like 25, 26. I started to learn and to understand how we're creating value. And I became extremely interested in 
not per se in business model, but for example, a term that's often used is, is disruption or disruption theory. So it's like, what is that actually? Where does that come from? How does it actually work? And I started to learn about all these ways how people were using digital technology to solve business problems. So all of a sudden, I found myself being super interested in business, still from that same perspective of making stuff, but now from how do we make uh, a business? So besides software and music in this case, now this third thing entered my life that was like, wow, there's actually, we can think about like these business models and I can marry them to, to the software. So then the thing came that open source is such a thing that comes natural to me. So I understood from you that you also have a lot of startup founders or people who are thinking about becoming founders listening to this podcast. I don't think that there's anything wrong with closed source versus open source. It was just for me, building a business based on open source principles was just the easiest. And then the question is like, why? So why, what, so what does that do for me or for the market? And what it does is that it builds transparency. So if you start on open source early, you're transparent about what you're doing. So we're creating complex software. Let's be honest, right? It's a database. It's an end-to-end from the ground of database. There's even assembly stuff in there. It's heavy lifting from a software engineering perspective. Plus what we're doing on top of that is that we try to enter a new niche and that new niche that is factor search and everything that comes from that. So being able to openly talk about that and openly show what you're working on is something that open source enables you to do. And I think the easiest way to think about open source, because something that a lot of people worry about, yeah, but if I give my software away, then people will start using it for free. That is correct, but that is something that you want. And a way to think about it is this. Open source software comes with an open source license. And that open source license says, if you have a problem with the technology, it's your problem. Which is a fair deal because you're giving people free software. So then that, that's the deal, right? So then they have to somehow solve the problems that come with that themselves. But the thing is, if you are a business and you're using this infrastructure software, like a database that we've hit is, then you probably don't want to run that in production yourself if you are a bigger company or you want to have a SaaS service if you are a startup because you don't. So the first one, the bigger companies don't want to run it themselves because they want service license agreements. They want to have guarantees. They want to have a, a specific level of support. And the startups, they just want to have SaaS. They don't want to have to go to the craziness of spinning up the Kubernetes clusters, run everything themselves. And now you have a little bit of a different deal. So it's like, okay, you can see that open source software, you played around with it, you see it, we have this whole transparent thing. But you know what? Let us run it for you. Let's make those problems that you have of doing it yourself, let's make that our problem, regardless if you're small or you're big. And now there's like a financial transaction happening there. So the beautiful thing of open source is that you do something together. You have a community about the open source software. The people, they might use your software for free, but they give you insights. They give you ideas. 
They create issues if there's a problem. They help you. They talk about what you're doing. And if somebody then says, hey, actually, now I want to go to the next step because I want to run my startup on your software, or I have a bigger company, I want to run that as core infrastructure, then there's a financial transaction happening. And I think the biggest lesson learned, and this is before my days about that, is back in the day when you had closed source companies, you had universities where a lot of people were pirating the software. Negative term, but that's pirating the software. But a lot of these companies were not doing anything about that, right? They just let it. You just let people use it in these universities or these campuses, those kind of things. Why? The reason they did that was because they knew that these people, it was not that they were not paying for the software because they were like, that students are per, by definition bad people. Of course not. They couldn't afford it because they were students. And they knew that if the students use it now, they might become later when they are in businesses, buyers of the software. And what open source basically, from a business perspective, enabled us to do that. So let's take the ugliness, that ugly word of piracy away from it. I said, hey, listen, here it is. If you can't afford it or those kind of things, or you don't need to support, by all means, use it. But if you need the support or the SLAs of us running it for you, then that financial transaction happens. And that's a, a beautiful thing. And I think when it comes to open source business models, we're just at the beginning. We're just, we haven't seen anything yet. We're just getting started. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for walking through the, the high level thought process that you had on how you think about open source business. And we definitely touch on uh, some of these points later on in some of the later question about the pressing model as well as how you guys engage users of the open source project. But going back to the product and this notion of uh, factor search engine a little bit, I think in one of your uh, early answers, you were mentioning this notion, right? Can you just give a, a short definition of a vector search engine for the uninitiated? Yeah, sure. We feel it's a vector search engine. So that means that it's a database of the flavor search engine. And then even in specific niche, which is a vector search engine. So that's not to be confused with data warehouses or time series databases or those kind of things. What does a vector search engine do? Machine learning models output vector embeddings. For those who don't know what that is, it's a dimensional representation of data. And so data that is similar to each other lives near to each other in the same space. And if it's farther removed from each other, then it lives farther away in that space. And those there's often not in two or three dimensions, but in like hundreds or even thousands of dimensions. And we can build a lot of cool things with that. So we can build new type of search engines. We can build semantic search engines. We can build a recommendation system and those kind of things. But all these cool things that you from these big companies like the, Googles of, the Google searches of this world and the Netflixes of this world, that is something we can do with these vectors. And because a lot of these models were becoming publicly available, thanks to the architectures, thanks to platforms like Hugging Face, et cetera, thanks to APIs from OpenAI, and now it is Cohere, those kind of companies, it was just very easy to get access to these models. So now the next step is if I want to build something that is based on enterprise search, what we're used to for maybe solar, or elastic or those kind of solutions, but we want to do that machine learning first, 
that is where the vector search engine comes into play. So the vector search engine is built to specifically work with and scale these machine learning embeddings. And because we learned that these types of indexes that really sit at the heart of these databases are different for vectors than it is for traditional text search. So ANN indexes, approximate nearest neighbor indexes versus inverted uh, indexes. We thought, okay, wait a second. We believe that there's room in the market for a new type of database that's good at that. So that's what the vector search engine solves. So you get the UX of existing search engines, but it's machine learning first. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing that previous definition. And let's dive even deeper on the sort of the technical desire that we did. Uh, I was browsing through the uh, documentation for a little bit. Some key features of Wibit include uh, fast queries, ingestion of any media type with Wibit modules, a combination of vector and scalar search, horizontal scalability, and even grab-like connections between objects using grab QR API. In just name a couple of features that can uh, most notable. So yeah, can you just provide a, a brief overview of the high-level design with it? So the high-level design is focused on the idea of people building search-based applications. They need certain things. So they need to have a great UX, for example. It needs to be easy to use the database. They need to be able to not only store the vector embeddings, but also the data objects. They need to be able to not only query the vector index, but also do traditional queries. Eh? The power sits in, in, in the search becoming hybrid. People dealing with images, they want to do on a high scale similarity search through the images, those kind of things. Now, so we started to learn like around that core database, there's room for modules. So we have modules that take care of factorization. So let's say, for example, if you want to use OpenAI embeddings, then yes, you could write a script that gets from the embeddings API of OpenAI, the embedding stores it in Weaviate and then you can search through it. But we also have an OpenAI module. So you just fill in your OpenAI API key, you're good to go. Do you prefer to use Hugging Face? You use Hugging Face or any other solution that is around. On the highest level, the design of Weaviate is a search engine that is ML first. So what do people need to build great ML first search applications? That is what Weaviate offers in the form of that core database, data object storage, vector storage, modules, those kind of things. And that goes back to the open source nature. Most of these insights, what people need is actually stuff that we're getting from open source community users. Yeah, thanks for going over that kind of design. Just a couple of notes more on sort of the scalability and like real-time persistency and, and graph-like connection. You can talk more about some of those requirements for the production ready level vector database. Yeah, so let's go in reverse order. So in BVH, you can make graph-like connections. Why? Because we've adopted GraphQL as a interface. We were thinking about what kind of interface do we want for people to be able to use Weaviate. So on the lowest level, if you will, as a user, it starts from GraphQL to query the database. We now also have like software drivers that you can use, but on the lowest level, it's a, a GraphQL. And yeah, what's in the name? 
GraphQL allows you to make uh, graph connections. Not to be confused, Weave is not a graph database like Neo4j or something is, uh, where you can do many-to-many -many relations. That's something we don't do, but we wanted to give it a simple interface for people to, to query to the vector space. So that is the GraphQL part and, the, and that the graph connections that you can make. In Weaveate, every single data object, or if you think from a graph perspective, every node in that graph has a vector representation that you can query through. When it comes to scaling, any database nowadays needs to be scalable, which comes, which is, comes with horizontal scalability, replication, and uh, those kind of things. Where it actually becomes very interesting is that these indexes that we've yet has, and mostly these index indexes, come with very complex design decisions. That is something I'm not doing. That's my co-founder, HN, with his team is working on that. And we now even hired researchers to really work with us on these, the core technology of these indexes and how we need to scale them and how we need to build them. But that comes with that scalability. So the cool thing, but also the complex thing and the uniqueness of it, so that triangle sits in the fact like, how will we scale these ANN indexes? And that is something that the team has solved. And we reached our first milestone of horizontal scalability because you can now horizontally scale Weaveate. And the next big milestone is replication on top of that as well. And that's all new because doing that with ANN, Approximate Nearest Neighbor Indexes, is that's a new thing to do. Yeah, thanks for zooming in on some of these capabilities. Talking a bit more about the use cases, I think you also briefly mentioned it a bit. But uh, people have been using Weaveate for different applications, ranging from semantic search, image search, anomaly detection to recommendation engine, cybersecurity analysis, and, and so much more. Would you mind going over some example use cases that you are most proud of? Yeah, I think so. It depends a little bit on how you look at it because there are different ways of looking at it, how we can be proud of it. The first one is purely the, the end use case perspective. And at some point we started to see new startups or bigger businesses building new products on top of the core functionality that the vector search engine offers. So those were recommendation systems. Those were semantic search systems that people say, Hey, or we can build a whole new business on top of this kind of technology. And they choose Weaveate for that. Or they said, Hey, we believe that we can create a new product if you're an existing company based on these technologies. And let me give you two examples. A lot of startups that we see work with, most of the use cases are still text-based. And a lot of the, the startups that we see, they want to create better search. So searching through ticket systems, searching through scientific articles, searching through patient files, searching through you name it. We've seen all these use cases where people say, hey, we can actually do that better thanks to these machine learnings. Sometimes they train the proprietary machine learning model, and then they use WeVA to present these end results to the world. New businesses, new startups building new business on top of WeVA. Then we have existing businesses. So for example, I'm aware of a bank that's working with WeVA where they want to cluster together how certain people the stuff people are buying in certain regions, right? So if you have a glass of Chardonnay and a glass of Pinot Grigio that, in the, that clusters together, and okay, in this region, people are buying wine, for example, and they do that on a huge scale. 
which allows them to build new products and end products for their customers again. So to answer your question, the thing that makes me on the first hand most proud is people building new uh, products, building new businesses on top of our software that they choose us as their core infrastructure. The second thing that I'm very proud of is just that's more from an engineering perspective, if stuff scales and if it's big and if it's fast, or I can also be super proud of the team. If, if one of our users or customers found this thing that they have this specific type of query and they go, ah, maybe this could perform better. That then the team quickly figures out how to solve that. And then there's a new release and then that's better again. So I remember the day that we imported a million data objects a few years ago and we were like, woohoo. And we're now talking about like billions already. And that is amazing. That is, it's beautiful to see that, that a use case is maybe more scalability, but that the combination of these two things. So top down people building new solutions, new businesses on top of EVA or bottom up just the, the core tech working and scaling and that people say oh, it's super easy to use. I enjoy using it. That is something that makes me super proud. Yeah. I'm sharing that about the business impact, customer satisfaction, as well as technical sophistication, the engineering part of you. Now I want to talk a bit about circling back in this concept of open source project again, and obviously, and you mentioned earlier in, on your earlier answer about how going with the open source business, you can find users who can advocate for, for adoption later on in the future. And generally speaking, finding enthusiastic and passionate contributors is notoriously challenging for any open source project. With it, your team at Sami has invested a lot in effort in community engagement via podcast conversation, virtual meetups, as well as the dedicated Slack community. How has your team engaged these contributors in a way that can generate valuable product feedback? Yeah, so first of all, what is important to mention is it depends on what you're building, what a contributor means. So if you are on one end of the platform like GitHub or maybe better example is a hugging face, is then the contributor comes in people bringing something, right? So uh, they bring a machine learning model or those kind of things. When you create a database, which is pretty low level, not the lowest level, but pretty low level as that what we're building, contributors come in the form of users who tell you stuff around the database. That can be all the way from UX. I don't understand how it works. I don't understand the documentation, those kind of things. To on the other hand, functionality. Why don't you create this functionality or we wanted to do this, but there's just not enough functionality in the database to achieve that. And we can't do that on the client side. For us, contributors seem the most, no, not seem, are the most important uh, to the feedback that they're giving what they want from the database. So we have private Slack channels on our public Slack channel from use, heavy users that just, they share everything with us. And that is so extremely helpful. Every release nowadays, you can see a few thank yous to community members who really made an effort to help us. So that is how they help us, how they support us. How do we engage with them? Yeah, I would say how you just engage with people on, on, a, on a day to day level, right? So people take the time to look at your technology, to try it out. That is something that I also find 
magical. That's so somebody just takes the time and downloads the Docker Compose file or runs a, a, a cluster instance and then takes the time to actually try it out and maybe even make the decision to use our technology in production. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, so we try to be helpful. You will also see me in my role. Our company is growing rapidly, but I'm still engaging with the community. If there's something that a community member asks or says, and I go, oh, I actually know the answer, I'll answer it because I find that important. I want to engage with the community because without the community, it would not be what it is today. Answer your question. How do I communicate with them? Like we're communicating right now and being very grateful for them, taking the time to share that, all that information or build whatever they're building and choosing we've had. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Yourself, Garcia, do you take inspiration from any other one-on open source project to run the WeVet open source community? Yeah, so I think it's almost a little bit of a cliche, I guess, what I'm going to say now in, in the space that we're in. But I think that a, a company like Mongo is doing amazing work there. I'm also getting a lot of inspiration from smaller, for example, JavaScript frameworks. I think that certain, and there's not one that now comes to mind, but those are more like, like front-end frameworks or those kind of things. The way that they engage the community is something that I find very interesting, even though that those types of communities are very different than the types of users that we have. And what I very much like is public discussion, but that's just a personal taste. I like it if something is, if something's wrong or if there's a, if something could have been done better that somebody just in from a from a company is public about it and says okay listen we thought x we were wrong so we're not going to go to y that is what i learn i learn a lot from these kind of things but i'm constantly looking around like how are people building community how are people uh, presenting themselves in the open source ecosystem it's i find it extremely interesting extremely rewarding and it's also it's more individuals. So it is people who I meet through, thank God now with COVID, hopefully being mostly behind us, but before COVID and now after, uh, meeting people at these conferences are, who are thought leaders in the space. I enjoy talking to these people and they're very like-minded. So it's a combination of projects and individuals that I can think of. Yeah, thanks for sharing those insights. So moving on from the open source project, Wivet Cloud Service is the managed version of Wivet for the enterprise. And actually you have written recently about a new pricing model that enables enterprise users to pay usage-based rate for search on a per-dimension basis. How did your team settle on this all new business model for vector search? So going back to what I said earlier, the what you're doing is running a database in production is hard. Doesn't matter which database. Goes for every, any database. That's difficult, right? And it comes without any guarantees. So you want to do two things. You want to be fair to your users. So you want to say, I only want you to pay if you're benefiting from Weaviate. If you don't benefit from it, you don't have to pay me. And a way to do that is with a pay-as-you-grow model. So in the case of Weaviate, the more you store, 
the more you query, the more you pay. If you're still developing or you just have a down month in your business, then costs will also go down. If you have a very successful uh, month or a successful whatever, then costs go up, but then that's because your queries go up. So that is something that you want. And the second thing that you want related to that is because people are paying us to run it for them, you want to make an optimal way of running it. So I would even argue that a business model where people talk about pay-per-use models, but where you need to spin up a machine and just keep it running through the month and where you have a flat pricing mechanism, isn't really fair because it's like, regardless if people are not using it or if it's not working well, they still need to pay for it. And then if they use it more, they just need to increase and, and even pay more. So I really believe that these pay-as-you-grow models work. We've attached that to vector embeddings because the way that the index grows and the way that the data is stored in the index depends on how big the embeddings are that are coming from your machine learning model. So it's very easy to calculate and to predict how much you will be paying for Weaviate per month. And I think that our current user base and our, our customers enjoy the fact that they're outsourcing those problems to us and that's what they're paying us for. And if they're just developing, just getting started, they just pay less. And if they grow, they pay more. Fair deal, I think. Yeah. There's a dedicated landing page on with it website on, on the pricing model that we should include in show notes. And it actually shows how you can plug in the number of queries and how that correlate to money that you need to pay for your usage, right? So it's it, it really extremely transparent about how, how this works. One of Gesha talked a bit about the high level thought leadership, about how the whole ecosystem is evolving. You've written this article on Forbes about the four groups of the AI first database ecosystem, which entail the embedding providers, neural frameworks, feature stores, and vector search engine. How do you anticipate the evolution of the tooling landscape within this ecosystem to support the increasing adoption of un unstructured data? Great question. So one thing that all these companies in all these four niches have in common is that we believe that AI first or ML first, however you want to call it, infrastructure is going to grow. So more people want to build stuff where they use and integrate machine learning models from the get-go. Now that's a nice add-on, but really at the core level of the infrastructure. I'm saying believe because this is still growing. This is, it's growing very rapidly, but the end is not in sight yet, but we're not there yet. So it hasn't started to plateau yet. So we don't know how far it goes, but we believe that it becomes like significantly bigger. Now, running stuff with machine learning models in production comes with new problems that need to be solved. Think about inference on the machine learning models. This is what the embedding providers do. That those who give you a model say, hey, here you have a model, now you can run it yourself. Or that people say, oh, here you have an API endpoint, you just query the API endpoint. Those are the embedding. These models themselves sometimes need to be tweaked. We need to have scissors and glue and hammers to work with these models. I believe that is what mostly the neural search frameworks offer us. So it's a way for maybe data scientists and those kind of people to work with these models. Then we get the feature stores. So the feature stores are the equivalent of the data warehouses for yeah, machine learning features. If you want to store a lot of data and a lot of features that you want to query through to train your models or 
fine-tuning your models. That is what these feature stores do. And then last, but certainly not least, are the search engines, right? The vector search engines. Some people refer to them as vector databases. I like to refer to them as search engines because it's descriptive of what they do. And they focus on storing the data and using these embeddings, these vectors, to search and build your applications on top of. And those four players, I would argue, make up the ecosystem. Just follow up on that point, I'm curious how do you think about partnership with these the feature store, the frameworks, and other embedding providers of the world. Like, how do you see Weaviet collaborate with these tools moving forward? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of partnerships. In our case, when it comes to Weaviet, the embedding providers are the easiest example of that. Mm. Their business, their core knowledge, the in some cases the, the communities that are building are everything around the models, optimizing the models, improving the models, and et cetera, et cetera, what have you. As I mentioned, we have these modules around VV8. So we try to have modules for in partnership with as many of these embedding providers as we can. Because we're basically saying, hey, listen, if you have a model and your model outputs vectors, like most of them do, you need to be able to store them in VV8. So what we like to say is VV8 is embedding agnostic. Right? We don't care where your embeddings are coming from. We don't care if you have a tiny 90 or 120 dimensional model. If you use a very big OpenAI, OpenAI DaVinci use, I believe 12,800. We don't care because we just make sure you can store it and that you can search through it. And the same goes for, for example, the feature stores. So I was recently on a podcast, a Simba Catters podcast from FeatureForm. They create a, a feature store. It's super interesting to investigate, like how can the feature store, the data warehouse of features work together with a search engine. And last but not least, of course, the neural frameworks. I think the neural search frameworks are still looking how they position themselves in the landscape, but we're working with a bunch of them together and great folks. So it's like everybody starts to find their place in that space. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that, that insight. And I'm excited to see how this AI first is the startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Sami's mission and align with the cultural values? Hiring is hard because the, it's very hard to, in, in the process of hiring, making sure that you're hired the right, that you're the right person. That's difficult. One of the things that I've noted, we're in a very lucky situation that hiring goes pretty well. Not 100% of the case, but it goes very well. And then often I could really say that you can trust, basically trust your heart, right? So you feel in interactions like, oh, this is a fit. This is somebody that I would like to work with, or the team that needs to work with this person wants to work with this person. One of the things that I also did was we are a fully remote company. So I hired somebody really early on, um, uh, uh, Jesse is her name, and, and Jesse is responsible for also not only for the hiring part, but also building the, the remote culture. So how do we make sure that people that join a remote company feel part of the company, right? That they don't feel remote or, or away from it. That is also a very important thing. So really make sure that people understand what kind of company we are, how we're building it. And we recently also on our company website, because we have our company and our product are separated from each other. 
we've also published our core values. So we have certain values, how we want to build our company. And if that doesn't resonate with people or if people have a different view on that, then even though if they might seem a good fit, then we maybe don't want to work with them because we're in it for the long run and the people joining us are also with it in it for the long run. And we have an amazing team and it's a lot of fun. And I think that is extremely important because people, we're building something new. As long as people are enjoying it then, and it's fun to do, then you get the greatest results from the team. Contra pits and finding people who align with your contra values. Like I'm curious, like during interviews or this interaction, how do you identify people who might be? So this is here, open source plays a role again. Because we have the open source technology, because we have this transparent value, how we build a company is that we're open about stuff. So we're open about how we build the software, how we build the technology, how we build the business. The majority of people, not a hundred percent, but the majority of people actually want that. And they come to us and they make very clear, this is something that I excited about. This is something that I really like. And that is how we are able to determine cultural fit. I think that a cultural fit is something within two minutes, within maybe we even within a minute. Okay, this is a cool person. We would love them to to join our company. And then there are all these other things play a role when it comes to how people, if people need to write software, how they write software, or how they communicate to people, those kind of things. But the first and foremost, the most important thing is, does do these people resonate with us and I can't give you a formula to do it. It's just having that conversation with people, being open with people about certain things. I would, for those listening, just starting a business, what I would advise is stick to your values. If you think, I'm not 100% sure because this person X does not really align with these values. They are great, I don't know, engineers or great marketing people, whatever. Let's do it. Often that backfires. So just hire people that are aligned with your values and within a few minutes that you see somebody. And people can be, we have, we're hiring people all over the world and there's like a commonality in how you present your values and what people find important. So I would say the best advice that I give that just based on lessons learned is Define your values with the team and stick to them. I think that's a really good point that you raised because startup is always for the long run. It's a marathon. So the cost of hiring an ally person can be very costly for the whole company. To your point, defining your values to notify the one that met that bar of culture fit is, is very crucial if you want your startup to to persist, to thrive, and go through the, the changing time as well as Embracing yes. the, the good times. Yeah. And don't lie about your values. It's easy to lie about values because let me give you a very simple example. Let's say that you believe as founders intrinsically that the only way to be successful as a startup is everybody pulls 12 hour days. Let's say for the sake of argument, that's what you believe. If you then write in your values, we believe in just relaxing and, or just if you have an open mind and a relaxed mind that you can do better work. Again, I'm making this all up on the spot, eh? but don't write that down because it's going to backfire because in certain people that perform in a certain way, 
oh, what a great company. And then you're sending them Slack messages at 11 at night and expecting them to immediately respond. And there are people who get energized by working that way, but there are also people who don't. My point is, it doesn't matter if it's one way or the other. There are like a gazillion ways to get to success, but don't lie about them. Just be honest about your values and hire people based on these values. Sure. We talked about working with with our users, talking about with employees. Final group I'm going to talk about is working with investors. Mm -hmm. Semi Technologies has raised $17.7 million today from VC firms such as New Enterprise Associates, Cortico Ventures, Zeta Venture Partners, NG Ventures, GTM Fund, and Scale Asia Ventures. What fundraising advice could you give to founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? what I said earlier was like, stick to your values. What I mean with that is that there are so many different investors and there are so many investors that find different things important. Take the time to find investors that you like to work with, that you like to be associated with. I remember when we just started and investors started to reach out to me, I was like, oh, wow, we just investors starting to send me emails. This is amazing. Let's take money from everybody who gives us money. <laughs> and luckily we didn't do that. And then I, I was in a lucky situation where I got some help and some mentoring from people and that I learned it that way. You build your technology. You position it in the market. Try to build a great product. You have your company values if you start to build a company. If your company is N plus one, your company and you can create your values, right? And you can find your investors the same way around that as well. One thing that I like to do with investors is that I like to be, I'm, I try to be super transparent. I'm like, okay, this could go better. And this is where we're going. And that is just, I'm super open about that. And because that's how I like to work with people, that I, that's how I like to communicate. Not only with investors, but also with to the outside world, with our employees, with our users, et cetera, our community. But again, choose, pick your style, right? Pick your way of building stuff. So if you as a startup founder find it extremely important to show value by early on creating a lot of revenue, great. Find an investor that believes that. If you are a startup founder, say, no, I really believe that we need to build a, spend first a lot of time and effort on that product before we show it to the, for the outside world. Great, find an investor that supports that. If you believe in open source, great, find them. If you believe in closed source, great, find them. It's for everybody, there's something. And that makes me think of a lesson learned when I studied music. I had a, a workshop by a famous a trumpet player called Winter Marsalis. And he told something, he said, like, if you make something, if you make music where you have a band, and he said, I'm going to guarantee you not 100% of people are going to like the music you're playing. So if only 75% of people like what you're doing, just keep going, do your thing. If 50% of people only care what you do, who cares? Just keep doing what you love to do. If only 25% of people just love what you're doing, just keep doing it. Only if 0% of the people, parents not included, don't like what you're doing, then you might want to rethink what you're doing. But for the rest, trust what you're doing, uh, build a good story around that and find the right people that want to help you and back 
your story. That is really, that's what I've learned and what I believe. Really interesting to see how you can uh, make that connection between being a performer and, and being a father, right? And how focus on the niche group than the tree for many. Finally, I want to c- conclude our main conversation just a bit about some of the recent articles that Jotin published on the SEMI website. And we talked throughout this conversation about this topic. I would love to just touch on it. So Jotin is very transparent about being a remote-first company and building an open-source brand. Could you mind hailing a couple of the major ideas on how you think about this topic in addition to what we have talked about so far in this chat? So remote-first, again, that is like a thing that if you choose to do that, you need to double down on that. The reason why we do that is because you can hire talent from wherever they are, or we can have talent move to wherever they want to move to. That does not mean that we don't come together. So everybody has budgets and those kind of things. So people, I see people traveling all the time, meeting each other, doing workshops together, work together, have lunches together, dinners together. Great. That's all possible, right? But you want to hire people from wherever the talent is and in places where people like Especially, I think, through COVID, we really learned what it means to just also build a good company around that and support people for that. So that's one thing. That's really, it's a core value. It's a thing that we do. It's remote first. And that's what is something that people choose to join. Secondly, we a lot of people that join an early stage startup are ambitious people, right? So we don't have a lot of people. We have zero people, literally. They got they wake up and they're like, okay, let's go back to my boring startup job because it's not boring. So these people are ambitious and people have expertise. The software engineers, they can showcase their expertise on GitHub. Great for them, right? So they can now show the outside, look what I'm doing. Why wouldn't we give those tools to people taking care of people in culture, of design, of customer success, of and, and those kind of things, community building, right? So what we do on the website, we give them, we call them our meta logs, meta, not as in like the company meta, but meta as in like about our company, how we built the company so that these people can showcase in the same way that people are showcasing the software on GitHub, they can showcase what they're doing and how they're doing it and how we're building the company. Because the thing is very simple, Uh, James, I'm a strong believer in it is you can be transparent about your strategy because it's execution that matters. And that's something you do together. And that's why we have this, we try to really adopt this open source nature, not only in the software, but also in how we work and how we operate. Yeah, absolutely. I think to, to that second what you mentioned, recall me about John's earlier about how the open source business work in that article, you mentioned the inspiration from David Chang of Momo Fuku on how he... Yeah show everything what you do is not just the, the ingredient, but the actual recipe and how you do it. So it's in this case, like how do you not just show the product with the muscles, but the actual, the how, the operation, the culture, the design, the company operates. It sounds like this is something that at will start a war for semi. Yes. And David Chang can be very transparent about what they're doing at Momofuku because he's damn good at it. I've tried to make something once at home from a Momofuku cookbook. It's better if I eat at David's, right? It's He's really good at it. And his team is really good at it. So why not just then build all these things in the vicinity around it? 
and basically build a better business. It's just Momofuku is a better business because of that than it would be if it only would have the restaurant where it would only be serving the dishes. But it's a it's mandatory. He needs to have the restaurant and the recipes needs to sorry the food needs to be of a certain quality. Same with software. If you open source software and it's shitty software, it's not working. So <laughs> you need to open source it, create quality, but then you can build all these things in the vicinity around it. Absolutely. So Bob, at this part of the conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the open source community whose work you admire. So the first one that comes to mind is actually somebody also on our advisory board is, is Sam Ramji. I've also been on his, on his podcast and he was an eye-opener for me marrying open source with business building. So the work he's been doing has been a huge inspiration for me. So that's the first. The second that comes to mind is, I think I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Paul Graham, I think, of Y Combinator for the reason that I very recently reread his book, Hackers and Painters, mm-hmm. which is an amazing book. and. Some of stuff is dated because it's, it, it was written in a certain time period, but how he shares, how he built software, what he, he himself studied. And that resonated with me, of course. He, he worked in technology, but also studied painting in Florence. So yeah. that was like an overlap. And he started Y Combinator. So he's something that somebody that comes to mind. And a third one that comes to mind. Let me not mention a person, but like a group of people. And let me call as the third one, let me call the community, right? So that those group of people that just spend their time on helping open source projects just because they like them. So I hope that I can fill that in as the third one. So the community in general, the inspiration that I'm getting from all these people taking the time helping all these projects. So that's my answer. Absolutely. Number two, name one book that you would give engineers who want to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. So bear in mind that this answer would change every month. Engineers that are, uh, uh, let's go for hackers and painters. So the book that I just uh, mentioned, I would give them uh, that book, but it probably changes. Every week you ask me this question, I'd probably give you a different answer. (laughs) I see. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all, all the early career creative technologists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Do it. Explanation mark. Don't think about it. Do it. That's it. I would just say, do it. So many people, so many great ideas, and they're not doing it. Do it. That's what I would tweet. Yeah, that you say that. And, and the way you say it is very animated. So I'm, I'm sure you're very a firm believer of master was action. And uh, so, Bob, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about Thank your you. early interest in programming your time studying music and performing earlier in your life. Your work as a design consultant using emerging technologies, the merging between physical and digital world, some of your thought leadership on how software can evolve as an adaptability to our language, as well as your current journey with the open source practice sessions in Wavid and company SME Technologies various tactical uh, discussion around the um, product capabilities, open source adoption, 
open source business model and pricing for an enterprise service, the evolution of AI first database ecosystem, company building, culture shaping, hiring employees, fundraising from investors, as well as being a remote first company. I will sure include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up, and learn more about some of your work with both with it and semi as your company evolve and as this landscape of vector database continue to pay more attention in the male uh, communities. So yeah, really enjoyed our chat today and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you so much, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.